Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to episode 17 of the Lovable Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about the masks we wear and the problems they cause us. See, here's the problem. If we are embraced by others while wearing a mask, in other words, putting forth a persona or a facade or a false self, then we come to believe we will only be accepted if we wear that mask. This leaves us lonelier than ever. We need to give other people the opportunity to embrace who we actually are and reinforce us for taking off the mask we wear. This week, we're going to do just that. Before we get into it, though, a reminder that these podcasts are being recorded every Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock Central Time. That's Chicago time on Facebook Live. If you want to join us, you can go to my Facebook page at that time. It's Dr. Kelly Flanagan, uh, and uh, you can join us. We are being joined by first-timers every week, uh, and they're letting us know that the live experience, being there for the actual conversation, is particularly helpful to them. Uh, And I think it could be helpful to you, too, so please feel free to join us. If you'd like a reminder on Wednesday mornings to tune in, or if you'd like to know when a new podcast episode or blog post is published, make sure you're subscribed to my weekly newsletter, which comes out every Wednesday morning as well at 5 a.m. Chicago time. If you haven't already subscribed to that, you can go to drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com and sign up in the right sidebar. You'll get one weekly email is all, a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto, and a free sample of Lovable. So lots of good stuff there. Make sure you don't miss it. And remember, this podcast is meant to cultivate and deepen the experiences that will already be happening within you as you read Lovable. So if you still need to pick up a copy of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available in paperback, digital, audio, wherever books are sold, so you can go to your favorite place to get books and get yourself a copy. And lastly, if you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out, which is February 14th, first of all, happy Valentine's Day, uh, or just Valentine's Day, because for some people it's not very happy, and that's totally okay. Also, tomorrow, February 15th, I'll be speaking for the last of three times at Chapel Street Church in Geneva, Illinois. Um, It's a group for... Uh, for moms. And so if you're a mom in the Chicagoland area, it's free, it's open to the public, and you can go to their website to make your reservation. It's chapelstreetchurch.com. Now let's talk about our masks, the risk of taking them off, and the joy of being truly seen. Thanks again for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. It's great to be joining you again, recording the 17th episode of the Lovable Podcast, which means we'll be reading and discussing week 16 of Lovable's companion book, Week 16 is entitled, The Fear and Joy of Removing the Masks We Wear. Last week we talked about making messes, and this week we're going to talk about taking risks. Specifically, the risk of removing just one of the facades we rely upon to get approval from other people. 
Before we talk about risk though, let's talk more about mess. In recent weeks, we've been focused on embracing our flaws, redeeming our mistakes, going out of our way to create a little mess in our lives so that we can increasingly embrace the ordinary messiness within us. How have you all been doing with this practice? What, you, what have you been experiencing? Uh, just what's on your mind today? And as you are thinking about sort of what you would want to share today, I thought I'd wrap up. So before we started recording last week, um, for those of you who are here, I mentioned that it was ironic, and, and a number of you pointed it out too, that on the, the day where we were going to record an episode about messiness, um, I woke up to discover that our sink was leaking, or actually my wife told me that our sink was leaking. Um, so I want to tell you the conclusion of that story. So I wake up to the sink, the sink leaking. Um, we record an episode about messiness and embracing mess and so on and so forth. And then later that day, about nine hours later, uh, my wife's at a school board meeting. I'm making dinner, which means heating up pizza. Um, and the, uh, the sink I'm trying to get fixed while the pizza is heating up and I discover that I bought the wrong part. So I think, okay, I can get to the, I can get to the hardware store and back and get the correct part and get that pizza out before it burns. Um, actually, I think it was a pasta dish. Um, and so anyways, uh, so I do it. Um, and I get back, I get with the part, I get the sink fixed. I think I've sort of got the mess of the night behind me. I can take a breath. And that's when my 14 year old son, Aiden, decides to shake up a bottle of balsamic, full bottle of balsamic vinaigrette dressing without checking to make sure the cap is firmly on. And he gave it a really good shake. And that dressing sprayed probably 30 feet across. It sprayed on furniture, on carpet, it sprayed on uh, walls, it sprayed on people. It was everywhere, about half the bottle. Um, and I did not embrace mess. <laughs> In that next 30 minutes, I did not embrace mess. So I'm starting with a confession that these some of these exercises are really hard to do in the realities of day-to-day -day life. I did not embrace mess in that moment. I very much resisted it um, and found myself frustrated. And um, and unfortunately, Aiden got the, the brunt of my loss of patience at that point. So um, that's where I was at last night after we talked, uh, or last, last week after we talked, and I'd love to hear more about you guys and sort of where our discussions have left you at. Julie writes, relax, have fun, be playful with our shame, our inner mess, the messes we make, dig it. Which is, Julie, the exact opposite of our instinct when it comes to shame and mess, right? It's clean it up, it's hide it, it's try to get rid of it, resist it, push it away. And, and truly, truly our shame doesn't stand a chance when, when what we do is say, I'm gonna move, not only move toward it, not only learn how to tolerate it and be in the presence of it, but I'm gonna learn how to be playful with it. It's a consistent theme that has come up for us in these, already in these first 16 weeks of this year of listening, loving, and living, which is when you are engaged playfully with your shame, you are fully uh, existing, and settling into the soul within you, your true self, um, and your shame, your shame can't stand a chance when you do that. So dig it, dig it, have fun with it. Julie writes, join the club. I jumped to the wrong conclusion following a phone call when normally I would have taken a deep breath and considered that the truth was probably something else, sigh. And it was, I found out later. Um, so Julie, the, the thing that comes to mind when you say that, I've done this, I think, I think two years in a row, and I'm not very good at it, but um, the last two years for Lent, what I've given up is certainty, 
Um, and so during, during those 40 days when something like that happens, I think that's what you're saying, is I try to pause and say, what if I, what if I fact check this? What if, I, what if I'm not seeing this exactly um, the way it is? What if I did something a little bit differently here? Um, and one of the things that's led me to conclude is that um, you know we all think we all think uncertainty is is really the cause of our stress, but more often than not, it's actually certainty. Um, you know that we are we're often more afraid because we're certain something bad is eventually going to happen um, rather than uncertain because we don't know what's going to happen. Anyways, um, I, I think what you're saying is that you you eventually took a moment to practice a little bit of uncertainty and say. Hmm. Maybe there's another way to see this. Maybe there's another way to interpret this, um, and that can be invaluable. Again, messy, right? It's a lot less messy to be certain and think we we, we know how it how everything went down. Um, so thank you for that, Julie. Appreciate it. Julie writes, "When I got the email that proved my first conclusion wrong, at least I managed to identify what I could do differently without shaming myself. Small wins, exactly, Julie. You know, and I think that that's a testimony to you." I think you're someone who's willing to be flexible enough and thoughtful enough and uncertain enough to be open to different data, right? Um, we've all, we all know people who, who aren't that way, right? When confronted with different data, they say, nope, I, the way I saw it is the way I saw it. Funny story about uh, um, uh, a friend who had a coworker who was just, just convinced that everyone uh, was upset with her all the time. And uh, uh, my friend was trying to convince her that that wasn't true, that their colleagues weren't really angry at her the way that she thought. And uh, one day they were having a conversation and one of the colleagues uh, left the conversation and walked out and closed the door behind him. And this woman said, see, see, I, I upset him. You know, I, I angered him again. He slammed the door, he was so angry. And my friend saw his opportunity to prove her wrong. And he said, I'll prove it to you. Uh, he, he didn't slam the door, watch. And he went over, and the door had one of those pneumatic devices on it that would that prevented it from being slammed. So he tried to slam the door as hard as he could, and the door couldn't slam. And his coworker said, "I heard that. I know what I heard. I heard that door slam. He was definitely angry at me." Um, and so the capacity to 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 have our uh, to have new data come in and shift the way that we experience things um, it's a testimony to you, Julie, and your willingness to do that. Um, and uh, and it's something that I think we all want to try to cultivate, is the willingness to be affected by new information. Deb W. writes, we've had the lovely flu in our house this past week, so embracing the mess was a challenge. Yeah, fortunately my daughter doesn't have the flu, but her being home obviously makes life a little bit more messy and a little more complicated, Deb. Um, in fact, I had the thought this morning as I was, you know, hustling to sort of get the driveway shoveled and also contemplating um, you know, how I was going to do my day with Caitlin home, trying to balance making her feel welcome in this space and also get everything done that I need to do. That is, the, the, the insight that I had was that I had sort of scheduled my week so that there was no room for mess to interfere with um, anything, you know? And I sort of scheduled it to the max and then any mess was going to make my week untenable. So that's on me that that's what I did with my week. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe part of what we need to be doing is to be scheduling our lives and to be structuring them so that there's margin for mess, right? Um, 
and then mess isn't experienced as getting in the way of what needs to be done, but mess is experienced as, oh, I made time for you, <laughs> right? Um, you, the, the flu happened. This is going to be a slower week, a less productive week, a sicker week, a week with more suffering, but we, we were planning on you arriving. And, uh, and so we've got some space for that. And there's something I felt convicted of today, which is I can't keep, I can't keep planning my life assuming that, that mess won't happen, but I've got to um, assume that it will so that I can welcome it when it does. Either way, though, the flu is no fun. Um, and grateful that that's not what Caitlin's struggling with. And I'm sorry to hear that that's, that it's arrived for you guys. Deb F. writes, I find the older I get, I am finding more humor in the mess. I guess it's easier now that I'm retired and no longer responsible for many outcomes. That is freeing. Deb F., I, th I think that's your sort of, I think you're piggybacking on what I was just saying, uh, maybe unintentionally. But, uh, you know, when there's less emphasis on productivi productivity, less em emphasis on efficiency, um, more room to be ineffective, more room to, um, I mean, mess and play, they exist sort of in the same family, right? Play is without objective. Uh, play is not focused on outcome, right? So you could, if you're playing with Legos, you're sort of just doing whatever. If you get a Lego set and you're trying to create this thing, well, then you're building. You're not playing necessarily, right? If, if, if getting it built and getting it done exactly the way they tell you to do it is the focus, then in a way, it's not play. Um, and so, so mess and play both have this quality of um, this is not focused on getting someplace in particular, um, but it's, it's uh, nonlinear. Uh, it is in some ways abstract. It's not about doing it's about being present to what's going on so um yeah i think that we need to create space in our lives for both of those things for mess and play brenda writes accepting mess is one thing publicizing it is quite another step not quite there yeah right that's that's a good way to put it brenda that there's a progression in our relationship to mess um, i think one of the tasks from last week was hey just put your mess out there on facebook um but and this is something we're going to be talking more and more as we get into the months of loving and start focusing more on belonging. And we talked, touched on a little bit last week is this idea that we need to be wise about our vulnerability, right? Um, we need to, um, yes, we need to take risks, but we need to take reasonable risks, you know, with people who feel um, relatively safe. Uh, so if we decide we want to share our mess with somebody, we need to start with somebody who it may not feel totally safe, but safer than others. Um, uh, you know, I think one of my favorite metaphors that I use in therapy is that when you're learning how to drive a car, you don't go directly to Lakeshore Drive in Chicago um, to learn how to drive. You practice in an empty parking lot. Um, and it's still, you know, your first attempt driving, usually it's probably a little anxious still, even in an empty parking lot. There's still a sense of vulnerability and risk about it, but the odds of it being successful, right, and being something that you want to do more of increases rather than being in the stressful situation, the dangerous situation of Lakeshore Drive. So the same is true with our vulnerability and sharing our messes. We want to start with people and in places that those messes are likely to be most embraced. Danette writes, I tell myself that I am where I'm supposed to be and try to find the lesson in the mess. I'm not perfect in this, but it does help. I shared that with friends when we were hurrying to get somewhere. I really appreciate that, Danette. Um, that suffering is a teacher <laughs> if we're willing to be present to it. Pain is a teacher if we're willing to be present to it. 
mess is a teacher if we're willing to be present to it. Um, if we're willing to to just not try to make it go away right away. Um, there's actually an awful lot that we can learn in the midst of mess. Um, and one of the things that we can learn is that we can still be joyful, peaceful, happy, connected, uh, and all of that, even purposeful, even in the midst of messiness. That messiness can coincide with all of those really good things. Um, I think that's that's a beautiful way to approach it. Cordelia writes, welcome to the club, Deb. Here, th here three of us on the board with flu also. Oh, goodness. The mountain of tissues in my son's rooms creates a lovely mess. Cake throwing party needs to wait. Cordelia was going to have a cake throwing party last week, and then everyone got sick. Life presented you with a mess you didn't have to create, right? Um, and maybe not as fun as the cake throwing party, but it sounds again, Cordelia, like there's a surrender to it for you um, that has made it... Um, something that is not as unpleasant as it could be. Um, and I think we can all relate to the mountain of tissues. Um, I'm thinking of our our cars right now, many of our, just both of our cars, just all the mountains of tissues in them. Um, so good for you, Cordelia, for, for being able to yield the kind of mess you wanted to make and, and yield to the one that, that life gave you. Tracy writes, after reading Lovable last year, I've accepted that my messiness doesn't mean I'm broken, it means I'm human. The energy it has freed up is liberating. Oh, Tracy, I'm so glad to hear that. And I can't think of a better summary <laughs> of, uh, of one of the most important themes in Lovable. My messiness doesn't mean I'm broken. It means I'm human, right? It actually means you belong. It doesn't, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you that makes you unworthy of love and belonging. It means you're in the same boat as the rest of us and, uh, and welcome aboard. So I am so thrilled to hear you say that. So thanks again, everyone, for another great discussion. There's so much good stuff here. Um, and now we're gonna transition, I think, into some more good stuff. Um, we have two more weeks, I can't believe it. We have two more weeks left is all in these months of listening, including this week. Two more weeks of focusing on embracing our worthiness before we shift into the months of loving where we'll be focusing on cultivating belonging. So this week, I think you're gonna notice the shift starts to happen. Uh, it starts to shift in the direction as we begin to focus even more on our relationships. And I wanted to give you a little more context for this progression from listening to loving um, by reading a short excerpt from Lovable. So here it is. From chapter two, the search for healing in our relationships. When shame tells us we're not good enough, we do the natural thing. We start searching for worthiness elsewhere. And there are two places we search for it most, the people in our lives and the purpose of our lives. Let's talk about people first, because that's usually where we search first. Having been wounded by people, we seek to be healed by them as well, but it rarely works, because the search for worthiness is not a group project. As a therapist, I've watched it happen over and over again, as well-intentioned people unwittingly push the responsibility for healing the wounds of their hearts onto the people they love. We expect others to rescue us from our shame. We demand others fix our feelings of unworthiness. After all, we experience our original wound, which is shame, in our earliest, most vulnerable relationships. So why wouldn't we expect our subsequent relationships to heal it? So having our enoughness thrown into question by the people we love most, we venture out into the world and embark on a search for love and acceptance, hoping someone out there will restore our sense of worthiness. We seek it from our friends and teachers and peers and coaches and boyfriends and girlfriends and lovers and coworkers and bosses and even strangers on the street. We look for it in everyone. In fact, it's the most common reason for getting married. Most of us believe our search for worthiness ends on our wedding day. Ultimately, 
We don't make a lifelong commitment to someone because they make us feel loved. We commit to them because, for a time, they have made us feel lovable. We think we have found the person who will at last make us feel forever worthy. But a marriage can't bear the burden of our search for worthiness. No relationship can. The greatest commandment declares, love your neighbor as yourself. Why does self-love come first? Because when we try to love someone else before we have first embraced what is lovable in ourselves, our love for them inevitably devolves into an ongoing effort to get from them the kind of love we imagine will make us feel worthy. Then, even our most sincere attempts at love turn into manipulation. At best, we give love in order to get love, which turns love into a commodity and a cheapened one at that. At worst, we try to coerce love from another in a million little ways. Personally, I prefer listing the ways my wife has disappointed me, screwed up her priorities, or treated someone else better than she has treated me. Of course, I do so passive-aggressively, so I can deny it if she calls me out. So at the heart of lovable is the idea that if our relationships are to really thrive, uh, they have to exist as an expression of our sense of worthiness rather than an attempt to achieve a sense of worthiness. That these months of listening have been about beginning to release our shame and listen for the voice of grace um, so that we can embrace our worthiness and then take that sense of worthiness into the ways that we love. Um, and then free that those relationships up to be truly loving, to be relationships where we are giving ourselves rather than trying to find a way to build ourselves up, make ourselves feel better, and so on. So um, this exercise this week, this reading and this exercise, um, begins to um, shift us. It presumes we've started to connect with our sense of worthiness, and we're beginning to get ready to go out into the world and into our relationships and to express that sense of worthiness by, by revealing who we are and trusting that we're good enough regardless of how people react. So that's the context for this week's reading. I'll go ahead and read it now. Week 16, the fear and joy of removing the masks we wear. Daddy, will other kids get more candy because their costumes are scarier? We are minutes away from taking to the streets for the annual Halloween ritual. My daughter is standing in front of me, dressed in white from head to toe, holding above her a transparent umbrella with, a homemade, with homemade eyes taped to it and purple and pink streamers hanging from it. She's a jellyfish with shimmering tentacles, and she is not one bit scary. But I don't have to think twice before smiling and answering. No, sweetie. With trick-or-treating, all you have to do is show up, and everybody who shows up gets exactly the same amount of candy, no matter how big or how little, no matter how young or how old, and no matter how scary or not scary you are. She smiles and skips away, tentacles flowing behind her. I smile too, because all of a sudden I like Halloween a lot more. Especially when I imagine my daughter six weeks later learning a very different holiday lesson about what she has to do to receive good things. Most of us know the lines by heart. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Santa Claus is coming to town. Yikes. <laughs> we teach our kids the most loving of their mythical guardians will punish them if they feel or express their sadness. And we teach them the gifts of the season aren't really gifts. They're payment for acting the way we want them to act. We teach them, even as kids, to work hard for their holiday bonus. Of course, it's just a song, and we don't really penalize our kids for bad behavior 
behavior with fewer Christmas gifts. The truth is, the song is probably a better representation of how we act the rest of the year. How many times and in how many subtle ways are we always sending each other this message? You have to be more and do more if you want good things from me. I smile as my daughter skips away because in comparison, the implicit message of Halloween is quite lovely. Come as you are. There are plenty of good things to go around. No matter who you are, no matter how you look, and no matter how you perform, everyone is identically lovable in our eyes. And I smile even bigger 30 minutes later when I see my son and daughter have abandoned their costumes altogether. My son's terrifying zombie pirate mask, already soaked on the inside with sweat and condensation, has been torn off and stuffed in his bag of candy. My daughter's jellyfish umbrella, adorable but not terribly pragmatic, is in her mother's hand. Now he looks like an ordinary boy in torn clothes, and she looks like an ordinary girl in white clothes. And yet, they are still receiving the same amount of candy. I smile because my kids have simply done away with the formality. In doorway after doorway, kind souls are not giving out candy because of the quality of the costumes. They're giving it out because they know it exists underneath the costume. They see the lovely little one beneath the layers and are sending a clear message. Thanks for showing up. You matter, you are valuable, and you are all equally beloved. In other words, Halloween is a night full of grace. Grace is what happens when someone or someone, with a capital S, sees through our many masks, recognizing and celebrating the innocent little one that still resides beneath all of our disguises. Grace is the presence that announces, underneath all your layers, there is a true self buried, and it is beautiful and beloved. Grace is the assurance that everyone is of equal value and equally worthy, so all you have to do to be loved is show up. Of course, there are places in the world where we need to do more than just show up. For instance, in school, we need to study and learn, and at work, we need to perform and produce. And of course, we should be graded and paid differently based upon our performance. But maybe, just maybe, we already have plenty of places like that in the world. Maybe we don't need to create any more of those places in our homes, in our friendships, in our communities, in our holiday rituals. Maybe we need more places like the streets of my neighborhood on Halloween night, places where you're loved just for showing up and seen for the lovely thing underneath your layers. And if you choose to take off your mask, more power to you. So that is this week's reading, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts, and I'm going to scroll back and try to pick up some of those now. Melinda writes, I love the idea that self-acceptance, self-love is not a group effort. I spent so many years being codependent and deeply resonate with your comment about why we get married. And Melinda, the rest of your, your comment is cut off. Um, but yeah, that... The thrust of that concept in lovable arises out of my, well, my own personal history, as well as my, you know, and in, in, in future podcasts, I'll read more from that chapter about ways that I've expected, for instance, my wife to make me feel worthy, um, but not really willing to, to receive um, her, her gestures of love because I didn't really believe them to be true, right? Because I don't trust that I'm worthy in a lot of ways. Um, so it arises out of my own personal experience, but it also arises out of um, you know, so much work with, with married couples and with individuals where all of the energy and all of the time in life is getting directed at how can I, how can I get from you what I need to get from you to feel good enough um, and redirecting that energy and that attention and that time into this individual project of embracing that I'm worthy so that I can go out and live that in the relationship rather than seeking it. Leslie writes, very powerful and applicable in my own life. I'm really glad to hear that, Leslie. Deb F. writes, applicable in my life as well. 
I spent years trying to get people to love me. It was the book Lovable that taught me I had it in reverse. I needed to love myself first. Wow. Uh, Deb, I'm, I am thrilled <laughs> that, that Lovable could, um, could, could create that shift for you or create, contribute to that shift. You were clearly ready to hear it. Uh, so glad it came at the right time. Deb W. writes, that chapter in Lovable spoke to me the most, and I still struggle with that truth of the search for worthiness not being a group project. Um, well, that's, that's part of what we're going to be starting to focus on here today, um, is the mask that we wear to get approval from people, because we think that approval is what we need in relationships, when the truth is what we need in relationships is to be able to show up, to be authentic and to be who we are, and to have a space that will accept us that way. Deb W. writes, I find myself subtly slipping into looking around for worthiness instead of looking in. I know I have come a long way, but still have a long way to go, and that's okay. That's exactly it, Deb. That's exactly it. I, I don't know if that instinct ever totally goes away. Um, it's not about making the instinct to look for our worthiness in our relationships and in other people. It's not about eliminating that. It's really about embracing that. Oh, that's what's going on here. Here I am doing it again. Um, and how can I then use that as a signal um, to return to myself, to focus on embracing myself, so that I can really go out and, and embrace my people? So, yeah, this isn't this isn't a, a one and done sort of thing like any like anything else we've talked about in this year of listening and loving and living. It's an ongoing project of being alive. And Julie writes, Deb, I think you speak for many of us on that. Well said, absolutely. Anne writes, me too. Deb W, still trying to break myself of looking externally for worth and love. Yeah. Good. So I hope I hope everyone can sort of take in that part of the discussion. Um, that when we discover that here we are searching for it again, um, that shame shame might seize upon that and say, "Oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? You haven't gotten anywhere. You're back at square one." You know, and and in that moment, we have another opportunity to listen for the voice of grace that says, "You know, hey, you're human." You know, this is what we do. <laughs> um, everyone's doing it, and good for you. Today you recognize that you're doing it so you can do something else. That's what the voice of grace is coming in to tell us. Melinda writes, yeah, continued. I've had to do a lot of work in this arena, and it's been very successful. Um, and that's the, that's the hope, Melinda, is that we head in the right direction on these things, that we do less and less of trying to find our self-acceptance in other people um, and instead make it truly self-acceptance, um, you know, that... It's coming from us, and then uh, we get a chance to show up and let other people accept us for who we are, too. Um, the, the danger is getting too much approval for the masks we wear, right? Because what starts to happen, we're, we're, again, we're humans. We get conditioned. Ooh, I was wearing a mask, I was putting on a facade, and I got approval. The approval was due to my mask. I need to keep it on. Um, and we want to undo that as much as possible. We want to give people a chance to start reinforcing a totally different experience, which is that actually when I remove my masks, that's when people go, oh, so good to see you. <laughs> uh, I sensed you were under there. I knew there was something beautiful under there. Welcome. You know, we want that experience reinforced um, so we can get to the point where someone doesn't do that and we go, uh, at this point, I'm more conditioned to, to trust that I'm okay, even if not everybody is, is super excited when I show up. Um, that that's more the truth that I'm defined by rather than the, the mask. Tracy writes, I think the Pharisees were pretty upset with Jesus too, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the story of the gospel. The dude just shows up. <laughs> uh, no mask, says I am who I am, right? 
and everybody loses their mind. <laughs> and one of the beautiful, and I write about this in, in Lovable, and we'll talk about it in the months of loving, um, that by the end, right? So everyone's put a mask on Jesus. They've, they've placed the mask on him. He is the Messiah, which in that time and place means he is going to lead a military revolution against Rome um, and overthrow the Caesar, and he is going to restore Israel to its rightful um, place of domination, right? And, uh, and so everyone's put this mask on him. And he just, over the course of his last week of his life, he just takes the mask off over and over again and says, nope, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. And over the course of that week, he literally goes from, you know, people putting down um, palm fronds in the, in the road uh, and riding him into town on a donkey and crowds celebrating him to, by the very end when he's on the cross, he's got three people at the foot of the cross who are on his side three people he truly belongs to say, without your mask, uh, you're still my guy. And three is enough, right? That, uh, that, that to have three people who can see us without our masks on and just truly wholly embrace who we are to the end um, versus a whole crowd of people who are super excited about us because of the mask that, that they're putting on us or the mask that we wear. That's the story. That's the story of the last week of the man's life. And it's such good news. Um, but it's not the good news we expect. It's not the good news we look for, um, but it's the good news that we need. Kelly writes, uh, Matt, profound reading, and I never looked at Halloween quite that way. I didn't either till that moment, till those words came out of my mouth, Kelly. I was like, oh yeah, wow, that's sort of a cool, it's a cool thing that's happening here. No wonder kids love Halloween so much. Yeah, the candy's great, um, but wow, good, good experience happening here throughout the neighborhood. Tracy writes, how ironic that the message of grace is taught at Halloween, not Christmas. <laughs> Tracy, I got, uh, that. I, I put a version of that chapter up as a blog post, you know, probably a couple, couple Halloweens ago, shortly after Halloween. I got some really unpleasant email <laughs> um, from people who were very upset that I suggested that, um, that Halloween was a more graceful holiday than Christmas. But um, I, I, I think... I think most of us understand what where, what I'm getting at with that. That the the message sent by the uh, the sort of secularized practices um, seems to be more graceful when it comes to Halloween than it when it comes to to Christmas. So um, not trying to trying to offend anyone with that. So let's put uh, a little meat on these bones, <laughs> okay? And let's talk about a practice and. Uh, and then we'll, we'll have a little bit of time to discuss it afterwards and then more time next week as well. So here it is. Week 16 practice. This week, I challenge you to remove one of your masks. Gulp. I know, this can feel risky. Each of us has more than one mask we wear. Most of us have many masks. This week, choose just one. One of my masks is my smile. I believe people will give me candy, which is to say love and affection and belonging, if I'm happy, if I'm not a hassle, if I'm not a burden, if I don't ask for their time and attention and care. So when I'm asked how I'm doing, I put on a smile. For me, this goes beyond normal social etiquette. I have difficulty telling my closest friends that I'm suffering. Our masks come in many forms, smiles, clothing, cosmetics, roles, and people-pleasing, to name just a few. Begin this week by identifying one or more of your masks. Complete this statement. If I blank, then other people will approve of me and give me good things like blank. I'm going to pause here for a second in this reading, and I'm going to read that again, okay? If I blank, if I do this, act this way, 
give this thing, whatever. If I blank, then other people will approve of me and give me good things like blank. Answer this statement in as many different ways as you can. Once you have identified one or more masks, choose one to remove. For instance, for me, that would involve calling up a friend, telling him how I am struggling with something in my life, and asking for a specific form of help. I get nervous just thinking about it. What masks are you afraid to remove? Take it off, friend, and dare to believe you'll be given good things anyway. That's it. A couple quick thoughts before we discuss a little more. Uh, one is that I said in that reading, I get nervous just thinking about it. And something that I can celebrate here as I'm reading that is not as nervous as back when I wrote that. I wrote that uh, probably a year and a half ago. Um, and I've had to ask for a lot of help over the last year. And um, again, I've learned that I don't need to have it all together. I don't need to take care of everybody. I don't need to have a smile on all the time. I can be messy and be needy and that people are more than happy in those moments to say, yeah, I'll help you out, what can I do? Um, great example of that, and I don't think I've told anybody this until now, um, yeah, anybody publicly, my family knows and friends. Um, you know, early December, I found out that this companion book that we're working through here on the podcast, that the publisher sort of made a decision, and I respect it, um, it's a financial decision that, now Kelly, the sales of Lovable aren't quite aren't quite where we need them to be, to, to be willing to publish a companion book like this. And I reached out on my, through my blog and I said, I really believe in this book. Can, can, and I'm asking for help. This isn't easy for me. Would you be willing to, to think of some people you want to give lovable to this Christmas? And, um, and you all just responded so beautifully to that. Um, and I felt, um, I felt given permission to be needy. Um, and so I've been so grateful to all of you for that. And one of the very good things that happened was right before Christmas, um, I got word from the publisher that they were going to rush a second printing of the book because uh, the Christmas demand for it had had surged so much. And uh, so we made a little bit of a step towards uh, convincing them that it could be a good idea to, to get this companion book out there. But uh, so grateful to all of you for that. But even apart from uh, you know that second printing, I had already received the gift from you of knowing that it was okay to, to kind of come to you and go, I'm needing something here. What do you, what do you guys think? And, and you guys were just so gracious, so thank you. Deb F. writes, oh boy, this is going to be a challenge for me, asking for help. Uh, and so Deb F., it sounds like for you, asking for help is, is, you know, being needless and wantless is one of the ways I've heard it refers to referred. Being needless and wantless is one of the masks you wear. And the reality is you're human, so you have needs, you have wants, you have ways you need help. So asking for help might be a way to take that mask off. The other thing I wanted to say about this practice is, uh, as I as I prepared this this episode, I had a very similar reaction to this practice that I had to um, the practice two weeks ago, where we were going to list our mistakes and try to try to uh, you know we're talking about shame versus guilt and say I made a mistake and I want to redeem it, I want to uh, correct it, whatever. Um, and I think the reaction is that that exercise was likely to have to involve other people for the first time, right? I made a mistake and now I want to go out and apologize to this person. And this exercise is sort of starting to get into that territory too, which means it feels riskier. Um, and, and that's exactly, so in Lovable, I talk about these three acts, embracing our worthiness, finding our belonging, and discovering our purpose. And that these are like three acts of a story, right? 
that as we embrace our worthiness, um, this is like the first act of a story where we're getting to know the characters, we're getting to know who we are, and we're sort of falling in love with the, the players in the story. Um, and, and But then in the second act of any story, things get messy, and things get riskier and more dangerous, and things start to fall apart, and things don't look good for a while in any good story. And so these months of loving that we're moving into are going to start involving more risk. Uh, and so they're going, to, they're going to be tough in a way. Uh, it's why we put the months of listening first, because we need to be able to rest in our worthiness uh, to move into this sort of messier work of trying to figure out um, how we're going to be in relationship with people. So I think that's what's happening as we talk about going out and apologizing about our mistakes or uh, removing a mask that we wear in front of people. We are really, truly transitioning into those much messier months of, uh, of belonging and of loving. So um, I think that's what we're up to here. And uh, it's, we're going to do it together. Deb F. writes, thanks for the offer to walk us through the scary. You bet. Um, I'll walk with you through the scary. How's that? I have a sense that these months of, of loving are going to be challenging, challenging me in all sorts of new ways. Um, so I'm, I'm in it with you. So we'll walk through it together. Deb W. writes, this challenge uh, will be just that for me. I will be doing it, though. Yeah, Deb, thank you um, for your, um, your resolve. And uh, it reminds me, one of my favorite lines ever in supervision was a therapist who said, uh, hey, it's okay to be depressed, just don't do depressed. Um, you know, in other words, don't let the depression determine your behavior because the, you, you need to behave in a way that will get you healthier again. And so it's, it's, it should feel like a challenge. It, it totally should. Um, but don't do avoidance, right? Uh, move towards that challenge. Begin to move through it. That's, that's what we're all, we're all seeking here. So um, thanks for reminding us of that, Deb. Thank you, everybody, for another great uh, conversation here. I think we covered a lot of ground um, from last week's discussion of mess to, to really starting to make this transition into the months of living, and I'm excited about where we're going. So um, we'll stop here for this week, and then next week we'll wrap up the last of our weeks of listening with week 17 uh, of the year of listening and loving, loving and living, and it's entitled The One Illusion We Cannot Afford to Believe In. And I'll tell you, it, it has a direct parallel in Lovable, um, I believe it's chapter 13. It, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book. It's like the chapter that came out whole and I didn't really ever revise. It just sort of moved around in the book a little bit. Um, but this concept that we're going to be getting at next week to me is, is, is just fundamental to this fully embracing our worthiness. And, uh, and so I can't wait to, to dive into it next week with you. So um, the one illusion we cannot afford to believe in next week. Until then, remember, mask or not, you are lovable. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. <laughs>